0: Welcome to the Going to Seed podcast. We hold these once a month, and today we have William Whitston with us. William is a plant breeder, and him and I have hung around in the same circles for the last thirteen years or so. William actually makes a living doing plant breeding, and he's breeding up in central Washington on the coast. Crops that do really well for him because of the climate that he's in are dahlias, Jerusalem, artichoke, mashua, maoka, and sorry about the pronunciation, <laughs> and oka and potato, kale, skirt, yuluko, Yakon, and yampa. And for the last decade, the most popular page on my website has been uh, about growing true potato seeds. And invariably, when people ask me for seeds, I send them to William. He has a website, cultivarable.com, where he sells the seeds. And they're such good seeds compared to the little narrow genetic diversity that I have in my garden, because William is really taking the potatoes to heart and just does a beautiful job with them. William writes like scientific articles about how to breed these crops. They're really detailed and careful. He maintains a laboratory in his home or his farm where he removes viruses from the potatoes and things like that. So during that time, he was working closely with Carol Deppi. So that's William. Welcome, William.
1: Thank you very much. That's uh, it's always interesting to hear someone describe what I do because I think I describe it differently every time. It seems so much more concise that way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Would you like to add anything to what you do that I left out, or that you really brings you joy? I think you did a pretty good
1: job. I, the the only difference, I, I think. It, is just a realization that I'm coming to over time. And that is that I think more than anything else, what I'm doing is just simply exploring these plants. What I'm doing is not ultimately always or necessarily even often practical. I do a lot of things out of sheer exploratory wonder that don't necessarily produce anything that, that anyone else will ever want. <laughs> so that that's that's a big part of it. But obviously I have to produce enough that other people would be interested in growing in order to actually make enough money to survive. So that's certainly a big part of it as well.
0: Are there particular crops that are more valuable to you?
1: I think yacon is, the, is my top selling crop and followed by potato. Everything else is quite small in comparison.
0: Can you describe the yakon growing? How does it grow? Sure. What do people use it for?
1: (laughs) So, Yacon is a sunflower family plant, structurally similar to a Jerusalem artichoke in that it's it's a tall, typically somewhere between five and nine foot tall plant with a structure overall similar to the sunflower Jerusalem artichoke. It has much smaller flowers, but it produces very large storage roots that are sweet and are typically consumed more like a fruit than like a than like a root vegetable the overall structure though is quite similar to a dalio or to a a jerusalem artichoke the plant is propagated by a rhizomatous crown and the storage roots are non-propagative they You could occasionally get an adventitious root or sprout off of one of them, but they don't have buds, so you don't normally use them to propagate. And sexually, it is a plant like many of these clonally propagated plants that has lost quite a bit of its ability to reproduce over time and was until fairly recently considered to be mostly sterile. And it turns out that a lot of these clonally propagated plants that are widely considered to be sterile usually aren't. They just need some work and encouragement to bring them back into fertility.
0: And how has your work on fertility been, or has it been productive to you to restore fertility to the Yakon?
1: Yeah. So initially I grew about six varieties of yakon that had been collected over the years and and they were south american heirloom varieties that had by hook or by crook made it into europe or north america (laughs) and then circulated as things do none of these were particularly in fact all of these were considered basically to be sterile there was some work done by hobbyists in the uk for a while you may know Owen Smith of Radix, and uh, and some others worked quite a bit to try to get seed from yacón, and really only succeeded in one case where they were able to cross yacón with a wild relative and get a hybrid through that. But I I collected some more varieties and really made full use of my long frost-free season. To get flowers really late in the year well into december and even january and eventually that produced some seed and once the ball got rolling i was able to go from produce from growing about a thousand plants and producing about a dozen seeds to growing a hundred plants and producing three thousand seeds in just a couple of years and that was just a matter of you know growing the new hybrid varieties that had improved fertility, identifying the ones that produced more pollen, focusing on those. And over time, I was breeding yacon, and now all of the varieties that I offer are varieties that I bred myself.
0: Very nice. (laughs) How is yacon used in the kitchen?
1: I think most people tend to use it as fresh fruit. It's crisp, it's juicy, it's mildly sweet, most of the time if i'm eating yakon i'm just eating it fresh you can certainly use it in things like a fruit salad you can use it in a stir fry unfortunately the major use of yakon in the world is boiling it down to make a syrup i guess i shouldn't say unfortunately many people like <laughs> yakon syrup but it's this kind of it's this kind of commercial product how do we how do we boil this stuff down and turn it into a diet food that we can hype and, uh, and sell. So uh, it's not the way I would choose to eat Yacombe, but it is by far the form in which most people would be familiar with the crop.
0: I don't even remember if I could buy that at the grocery store. That would be interesting to look for.
1: (laughs) Probably could at a health food store.
0: Okay. So you mentioned Dahlia. Can you tell us about growing Dahlias?
1: Yeah, it's the whole. There, there are great similarities between yacon, dahlia, and Jerusalem artichoke. They're all fairly close relatives that are structurally similar. Nice thing about Dahlia is that they're quite willing to make seed, so that's nice. You don't have to. You don't have to start from scratch. You can pick a couple of, of any widely available dahlia varieties and grow them and assuming that you have any pollinators odds are you're going to get seed and you're going to get very diverse seed because dahlias are polyploid crop most of them dahlias are another quite complex group in which the garden the common garden dahlias polyploid but there are related species that are diploid and that can be more straightforward to breed but the common dahlias are polyploid and so any seed you get is going to be quite significantly different from any other seed and uh, that obviously has its upsides and its downsides it's harder to get to anything resembling stability by going through multiple sexual generations but on the other hand you can a tremendous amount of diversity in just one generation of seed and you can propagate it clonally and Mm -hmm. so it's very easy to fix traits that you like that way you know there's it's definitely a wonderful feature of any clonally propagated crop is if you like what you can keep it as long as you can manage to keep propagating it so that's and dahlias as far as a food crop are I'd say still on the edge. They, uh it's not that easy to get really delicious sweet dahlias. It's maybe from my seeds, which I've done a fair amount of work on. It's maybe something like one in eighty is a dahlia that I would want to eat, and the rest is a dahlia that I never want to taste again. So that so there's definitely a lot of work that could be done with that crop, and of course, and the other problem with dahlia is an, is a thing that's common to all of these sunflower family plants, and that is that the, their major storage carbohydrate is inulin, and inulin is quite hard to digest. It's easier for some than others, but uh, it, it would be difficult to make any of these a staple crop that you would want to eat all the time because they're just going to blow your guts out eventually.
0: I typically use the dahlias and the Jerusalem artichokes something that you add to a soup or you add to a stir fry in small amounts, but not eating a whole plate full of it.
1: You definitely wouldn't wanna eat them like potatoes unless you're a you're an unusual person. There are people who can do that. There are people who can just pile on the Jerusalem artichokes and never have a problem. But I have tried to adapt to those crops. I've followed the the common advice that if you add them to your diet, in increasingly large amounts, eventually your gut microbiome will adjust and you'll simply, you'll be fine. And I've Uh, not found that to be true.
0: Sweet. On your dahlias, did you end up choosing for different flower types? Were there some flower types that are more seedy or easier to work with than others?
1: Yeah, I did this indirectly in that I found it was much easier to breed towards sweetness in Dahlia coccinea, which is a wild relative of Dahlia, they're typically single flower dahlias, and they have an open center. And the open center means that the insects can get in there and do the cross-pollination, and so you're going to get a lot more seed. And so it's a nice coincidence that the Dahlia species that, is, that tends to be the, the, the best to eat is also one of the ones that's easiest to breed.
0: I, I also found my dahlia breeding moving in the direction of single flowers instead of the all those petals that interfere with pollination.
1: Yeah, it's really difficult. It, it, if a dahlia is sufficiently ornamental, it's effectively sterile because no insects are going to be able to get in there and do any pollination.
0: I used to get rotten rotten seed heads, and that was really nasty.
1: <laughs> yeah, you you literally have to pluck the petals out if you want that to work. I've done some breeding with older Ah. garden dahlias that are like pom-pom types that, that, that actually have very good flavor. But if you don't, if you don't open up the centers so that you can either manually pollinate or let the insects do the job, then yeah, you're just going to get those gnarly, those gnarly wet balls that at the end of the season that, that that contain nothing (laughs) of any use.
0: While we're On the sunflower family, could you tell us about Jerusalem artichokes?
1: Yeah, so Jerusalem artichoke was my original plant breeding adventure. When I decided I was going to breed plants, I I looked around, I thought, what should I work on? What is a plant that could be, that could be improved? That is not where I'm not going to have a lot of competition or where I can potentially do something unique and uh, and add value to a crop. And I thought, Jerusalem artichoke is really productive and it's tolerant of a wide range of conditions and it's hard to eat, even though it tastes good. So I thought, that seems like a good candidate. And it turns out that you really couldn't pick a worse crop to try to learn <laughs> plant breeding with than Jerusalem <laughs> artichoke. I think it worked out in my case because it, it compelled me to learn so many things, but it's a hard one. It's still, it's, I, it's still quite hard. The first problem is, as with so many of these crops, is that it's polyploid. So you're not gonna get to stability easily, but it also has a, a type of self incompatibility that's much less common in, in most domesticated plants. That makes it really hard to make crosses because not only is it self compatible, but it's widely just incompatible between varieties. So you could do everything right, but pick the wrong varieties to start with. You could have 10 varieties and discover that you have no mutual compatibility between any of them. You could also pick two random varieties and find that they immediately set seed for you. But on top of the incompatibility problems, you have the fact that it is a it's a crop that is, is photoperiodic when it comes to producing flowers. And so it, it, you may have a very limited amount of time at the end of the growing season to actually do any crossing and produce any seed before the plants just die. And in some cases, the period is too short to do anything effective. And there are some varieties that, that have long day flowering, and those are quite useful. But also, the varieties that have long day flowering are all mutually incompatible. <laughs> so somehow you have to find <laughs> a variety that overlaps enough that flowers late in the season with a variety that flowers early in the season in order to to make those crosses. It's a really difficult, but very interesting plant.
0: Mm-hmm. H- have you done any work on trying to cross the Jerusalem artichoke with annual sunflowers?
1: I haven't, it's not the direction that I really want to go. It, mm. I, I've looked at some of the results. It's, people have done that, but it you lose so much of the Jerusalem artichoke traits in that cross. It I tend to think of that as being a cross that's more about trying to introduce perenniality to annual sunflowers than it is trying to gain anything for the Jerusalem artichoke. And so that's the opposite direction that I want to go in. When it comes to to, to the sunchokes, I my my overwhelming interests are to get them to reproduce earlier in the year, so that it's easier to breed them, and then to try to increase the fraction of non inulin carbohydrates in them, in order to hopefully make them a little bit more digestible.
0: Is that test available easily to a home scale gardener?
1: not really there are things you can do um you can you can do an iodine stain of the of the tuber flesh which it will take up more of that stain in the event that you have a higher starch fraction in the tuber than inulin and so that's one way to get a sense but honestly, the one of the easiest ways to get a sense for whether you're making any progress is just to eat them and see what happens.
0: <laughs> yeah so many times when people want me to propose a scientific method of doing something, I'm like, just taste it. yeah, yeah and see what happens. Can we shift a little bit to describe your ecosystem and where you're growing? and how that affects what you grow?
1: Absolutely. I'm on the coast, on the outer coast of Washington State, which is not a place where that many people live. Most people in Washington live on the Puget Sound, which is about 80 miles inland. And so the outer coast is more of a temperate rainforest climate. And it's uh, it's chilly. It's uh, It's got... A long chilly growing season and it's extremely rainy for about half the year. So I've got about reliably about 300 days frost free. And occasionally we go the entire year without a frost, not this year. This year was very strange. We had really early and hard freezes, which hardly ever happens. Normally it's, uh, I'm able to work just about year round. But we have between October and and May, we get about 120 inches of rain. So it's wow. very soggy for that half of the year. And then in the rest of the year, it still tends to be cool and foggy, but there may not be a single drop of precipitation. There are some challenges there. I have to irrigate to... To grow anything because it, otherwise it's basically a mediterranean climate summer where there's just not any rain to use and the temperatures never get that warm so it only reaches into the 70s here maybe a week or two out of the year the rest of the year it's going to be uh, mostly between the 40s and the 60s and mm. uh, so it's a great potato climate potatoes love it here but I wouldn't be able to grow an ear of corn if I tried. As far as the rest of it goes, because of the rain, this is a climate that has very poor soils. One of the things that that enables me to do is to breed plants to grow in poor soils. I don't do a lot of amendment. Mostly I work with what I have and I select varieties that don't need a lot of fertilizer typically they'll do much better if they are given fertilizer but and i do some fertilizing it really just depends on my goals there with some plants if i'm going to get seed from them in order to make crosses i need to give them a little something to get them across the finish line but in general my philosophy is to try to do as little as possible so that i'm not so that i'm not introducing conditions that i have to maintain indefinitely
0: can you tell us about your laboratory and about what you do on that and how you clean up a potato variety? and
1: Sure. It's hard to so, so I guess I'll tell you why first. <laughs> the first thing one of the worst problems that I had early on is that I grew all these clonal crops, and they clearly had diseases, and there's not much that you can do once you get a virus into a clonally propagated crop. It's just going to continue infecting that crop forever. They don't spontaneously recover. They just live alongside each other until either forever or until the infection becomes so severe that the crop just simply can't reproduce anymore and it dies out. Now, this is a a, a well-known and uh, traditional problem with potatoes. Potato varieties would eventually run out they simply didn't produce anymore and people abandoned them and then they would introduce a new variety grown from seed and move on but because it's so hard to concentrate rare alleles in a polyploid crop you really do lose something when you lose a when you lose a good variety and so there's value in being able to, to clean these up to cure the diseases and at least bring them back into production so that you can use them in breeding and uh, there's really only one way to do that which is to which is to grow them in under laboratory conditions where you can apply techniques like thermotherapy chemotherapy and there's some other lesser known cryotherapy is another option where you actually can freeze the growing tips of the plants to kill viruses that because that requires liquid nitrogen that's a little bit beyond my my scope <laughs> But the first stage to being able to do this for the most part is tissue culture. You need to be able to establish the plants in culture in a form where they are easy to work on. In, in rare cases, you can directly treat a tuber. There are some viruses that are just acutely sensitive to heat, for example. And you can actually heat a potato tuber up to the point for long enough Where the virus dies but the tuber doesn't but in general the mass of a tuber is so great it's really hard to wipe out a virus in something of that size but if you can establish a a very small plantlet in tissue culture and you can get it growing rapidly the mass that you have to deal with is so much less the amount of virus in that mass is so much less that it's more sensitive to various techniques and one of those is again is thermotherapy you can establish small plantlets you can get them growing rapidly you can put them in a in an incubator at a temperature that's high enough to potentially kill a virus but not kill the plant itself and over time you can clear them of viruses that way you can also subject them to chemotherapy and this is one of this is typically one of the more effective strategies there's a common antiviral known as ribavirin, if you introduce that into tissue culture with a plant that has a virus, it over time is very likely to clear that plant of infection. Uh, Maybe 50 to 60% of viruses subjected to ribavirin in a high concentration over a period of three to four months will eventually test, test clean. Some will require a combination, so you have to give them chemotherapy and thermotherapy. And then some are just very difficult to clean in any other way than through meristem culture, which is a practice where you dissect the growing tip of the plant and take only a very small piece, about 0.1 millimeter in size from the growing tip and establish that in a new culture and allow it to grow. And that, that meristem tip is not connected to the vasculature of the plant. So most viruses are not yet communicated to that part of the plant at that stage of growth. And so you're actually slicing off a piece that is in many cases, virus free and growing that, but it's really, it's really difficult. It's my, it's my technique of last resort because. I'm almost 50. My eyesight isn't that good anymore. My hands aren't as steady as they used to be. You have to do all this work under a microscope. And it's really it's really a game for a younger person. So I try everything else first. But that's kind of the picture of a virus cleanup in general, which was my initial application for having a lab. But it turns out there are also many other reasons to have one. And one of the best reasons if you're growing a large number of clonally propagated plants is that you have a way to preserve them without growing them in the field. Because if you have a large collection of potatoes, for example, and you don't have a lab where you can preserve them in culture, your only option other than growing them in the field every year is to try to keep them over for maybe two years in a refrigerator. And that's far from a certain bet a lot of them will die sometime in that second year sitting in the refrigerator and it's just so easy to lose things if you don't have a good way to preserve them and that's a good deal of what I do is just simply keep plants in culture so that I have them for the future when I want to grow them again and uh, and when you put the two things the virus cleanup and the storage together the other part is you're able to maintain all that work that you put into cleaning them of diseases indefinitely as well. So you only have to do that job once because it's a real pain to do it once, much less over and over again. So that's that's uh, that's the lab.
0: Sweet. Could you describe tissue culture a little more?
1: Sure. It's really a fancy way of saying that we're taking cuttings and we're keeping them in small containers. That's really all it is. Yeah. <laughs> it, the it, so it, in my lab, I mostly grow things in twenty-five millimeter culture tubes. They're just large test tubes, and it, in each test tube, I use an agar-based media that contains typically a, 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 a blend of uh, of minerals and vitamins. It's known as Murashige and Skoog medium. It they're many different mediums that can be used in, in tissue culture, but that's a common one. It's just known as M- MS most of the time. And it's just a fertilizer, right? It's just the basic minerals that are necessary for plant growth. So, something
0: and, like miracle grow.
1: Sure. Yeah. It's, you could potentially just use a regular commercial fertilizer in tissue culture rather than a f- one with a fancy name that got written up in a scientific paper but yes. it, it's a you know, it's a formulation that's widely available if, if if you're buying stuff from a tissue culture supply company and it's been widely studied so it's easy to know how much to use in your medium but so we're talking a test tube with a small amount of, of a gel-based media in it into which you insert a cutting and allow the cutting to grow in that hopefully Uncontaminated environment.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: because the, obviously, if you have a if you have a gel based medium, and you put a plant in it, and uh, and anything else gets in there, like a bacteria or a fungi, that is going to quickly outcompete the plant and uh, and eat the medium and leave you with a mess. So, a big part of what's going on in tissue culture is getting is getting us. Uh, sterile piece of plant to put in there in the first place. That's actually the hardest step in tissue culture is establishing a new culture. Once you have a plant in culture and it's, it, it, it's sterile, as long as you can maintain an aseptic technique to cut it up and transfer it to new tubes, that's very easy. You can do that all day long. You, just, you work in a clean environment, you cut it up, you establish new cultures, very easy. But it's that first one that can be a real pain because Uh. (laughs) plants don't just have contaminants on the outside they have them on the inside too and so you can clean the outside of a plant all you like and and that will work in many cases but there is a lot of there, there are a lot of endophytes that live within plants and some of them are beneficial and some of them aren't and some of them are beneficial unless you put them in an environment where they can take over in which case they're <laughs> no longer beneficial and there's a lot of complexity there as well
0: thank you could you talk about the open source seed initiative a little bit
1: absolutely I, so the goal overall of the ossi is to provide a, a, a protected commons where people can can share new plant varieties without allowing others to later lock them up by the use of patents or or other intellectual property protections so it's a simple pledge that you place on your varieties that that says that neither you nor anyone else can lock these varieties up in intellectual property protection they are they are forever available for anyone to use in any way that they see fit, as long as they also agree to the pledge that no one can later take the descendants of these varieties and lock them up with intellectual property protections. And I thought that was a great idea. It was something that I had been thinking about before I I realized that the OSI existed because my, in my previous life, I worked in the software industry. And so I was very familiar with the concept of of open source software and copyleft ideas. And I'd also just seen a lot of what I thought was pretty dodgy use of intellectual property protections in, in, in that industry. So I'm actually not opposed to intellectual property protections in general, but I just thought there should be a, an alternative. And I think the OSSI is a great alternative. I think it's fine to have both. I think it's fine to do either one, but I release all of my varieties under under OSSI have, I don't think that's something that I will ever stop doing. I don't have any interest in in releasing new varieties in any, any other way. The, and there there are a variety of reasons for that. I'm I I, pref- I I prefer the idea that people can use my varieties in any way that they like. I think that's I would have just released them public domain if something like the OSSI didn't exist, but I I, I like the idea that This is a little bit stronger in saying, no, they have to remain free to use for everyone far into the future. I like that. But there are also practical reasons why I would not undertake something like plant variety protection or uh, patents or any of those things. And that's simply that these things are not practical for a small plant breeder. They're expensive. (laughs) You'd have to sell a tremendous amount to, to justify the cost of anything like that. And uh, I read very specialized things that not many people are interested in that often don't last for very long. If I keep a variety for five years, that's a long time. So they're just, the, the other types of intellectual property protection just wouldn't be practical choices for me, even if, if there were things that I wanted to
2: do.
0: So could you talk a little about so supposing someone develops a new variety, how do they go about getting that recognized by the OSSI?
1: Sure. Yeah, that's a very straightforward process. If you go to the OSSI website, there, there's a form there that you can use to submit your variety. And you just basically have to give a little bit of background information on it. Talk about what varieties went into the breeding, what process you went through to to select it. and uh, Typically, it, it, I can't remember what all the questions are, but it, it'll ask you to talk about what your goals were and then what the actual outcome was. And it, there's nothing that's difficult to answer, but the goal there in general is to make sure that there was actual breeding work done. Not everyone who, who applies for uh, OSI is, is super clear on, on on what constitutes breeding and what doesn't. And of course, there are areas where reasonable people can disagree on what constitutes breeding and what doesn't. But for the OSSI, the rule is you have to have started from genetic diversity. In general, they're not going to recognize a process, for example, where you grew an open pollinated variety for five or six years and now claim that it is locally adapted without there having been any introduction of more genetic diversity to that line. You, you can certainly make a claim that things have happened in that period of time that over those five or six years, some genes have changed, some perhaps some epigenetic changes have occurred. It, it, there's certainly room to say that there are differences, but it would be very hard for, to establish that as, mm-hmm. as breeding without some very clear testing involved to show the difference so in general it starts with genetic diversity and then a process of selection to a new thing
0: thank you let's open it up to questions does anyone else have some questions for william
3: i do all right <laughs> on the Yukon, uh, your climate you describe your planet cli- your climate is vastly different than mine but you work with uh, dahlia and dahlia grows like weeds here and uh, produces large clumps of roots. Is Yacon similar to Dahlia? Could I maybe expect it would grow similar for me here?
1: Yeah, Yacon will generally produce a useful yield any place that you have a, about a four month growing season. So mm-hmm. that opens up most of the country, maybe even three months if you have a very warm summer. Yacon likes to be warm, so it's, uh, it'll grow quite quickly in a place like, like Florida, where it routinely gets up into the eighties or lower nineties, but not scorching.
3: Okay. I'm in Southern Indiana and I can have three months in the low nineties and easily. And also periods very dry during that. So that's why I wondered, but you're growing your dahlias in your climate. And in my vastly different climate, they grow great. So I was just hopeful maybe it would too. I might have to give it a try.
1: Yeah, I think it would. It, probably uh, of all the crops that I grow, Yacon is the most uh, adaptable to continental climates. It's actually chilly in my climate. It would rather be in a warmer place than okay. here. But uh, it a it, it stand out because most of what I grow is... It does not like to be hot. Y- Yakon will take 80s or 90s. It doesn't like to be dry. If you're going to have a long drought period, it's going to need supplemental water. But heat mm-hmm. is not a problem.
3: Is it adaptable, uh, genetically adaptable, where I might could steer it toward tolerating a little bit more dryness?
1: You c- it, 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 it's certainly possible to breed new varieties, but you need a pretty long growing season for that as far as adaptation within the plant it's possible Uh, that'd be much harder for me to establish here because i just don't have that much variability year to year in in climate but it's certainly the case that some plants show a significant amount of adaptation even among clonal varieties to new conditions over time i wouldn't bet against it
3: is it day length sensitive it needs a uh... it's
1: not it's uh, it simply has a maturity period that is no less than about a hundred days.
3: Oh, I got that
1: the uh, the flowers themselves, if you're considering breeding the flowers themselves, m- may have some short day character. It's really hard to tell they have a much they require a much longer period of maturity before it begins to flower than before it begins to produce roots. And in some cases, it, they may not flower at all until days are short.
3: Okay. Interesting. <laughs> I have a question. I was wondering, are you, do you know anyone or are you still working with Apios americana or the groundnut?
1: I'm working with it, which is to say that I still have some. It's not a it's not a plant that grows well here. So I have not made a lot of progress with it. And as is often the case with plants that I don't make a lot of progress with, I, I tend to not pay much attention to it anymore <laughs> unless it does something unusual. It doesn't like to be dry. And that's the main problem being west of the Rockies. It's a plant that really wants regular rainfall throughout the summer. And even though I irrigate, it's not as much as that plant wants. It wants to live next to a stream east of the Rockies with regular water. And it just does not like dry summers. So I have a bunch of varieties. that grow very poorly and very slowly. They are reluctant to flower, but in a long enough season in which I've watered them enough, they eventually do. And every single one of them requires hand pollination in order to set any seed because the insects that pollinate them in their native environment don't exist here. They require a certain kind of carpenter bee that can trip the flower in a specific way in order to make it possible to pollinate. So it's just a bit of a difficult crop. I think if you live in a place where it grows naturally, then you're a great candidate for working with it and improving it probably a much better candidate than I am.
3: Do you know people who are,
1: who are like active, who other people who are actively working on it, working with it? I don't almost everybody I know who has tried it has eventually given up and found it too difficult to work with. There's a certain, there's a certain challenge with it in that most of the diversity that exists is in diploid varieties that are more Southern. They're found more in the Southeastern US in warmer areas. And for whatever reason, most of the people who are interested in breeding it are in more Northern cooler climate areas where the native varieties tend to be triploid and sterile. And so it's most of the breeding work that was done with, with Apios americana was done at Louisiana State University. So that gives you an idea of what kind of climate is probably ideal for breeding the crop. And unfortunately, they abandoned that breeding program and there really hasn't been a lot of work done with it since then. But prospects for it as a more northern crop are probably long-term at best for, for like the southeastern U.S., prospects for it are as good as just finding LSU varieties and starting to grow them because they were adapted for that kind of climate. And as I understand it, in that climate are quite high producing. Right. Yeah. I grew up some last year. I, the thing like the people will advertise it as it's an LSU variety, but they don't tell you which one. So I'm not sure which one it is, but it did very well for me because I'm in Tallahassee, Florida and it's something i'm more interested in exploring more of the different varieties out there but i have some and i'm slowly introducing what i have into tissue culture which is likely the way that i will begin to share it again whenever i do start to offer it because it just it's not a crop that reproduces well by tubers in this climate i'd be digging it every 5 years to get a small crop that would be worth selling. So in the future, I will have more of the LSU varieties. I'm At this point, I'm just gradually taking them out of the places where they've lived for the past 10 years and introducing them to culture so that I can get them to people who want to grow them. I think for you, in your climate, you could much more easily be a groundnut breeder than I could. And the world could use some groundnut breeders. I would encourage that.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Okay, Bill, this is Holly. I have a question on true potato seeds and land racing. So I live in a short climate, which I mentioned earlier that 54 days, I'm pretty sure of, I may get up to 80 depending on the year. And I have successfully grown red potatoes that you just buy this, the tuber seed potato at the store, wherever that you buy seed potato, but Last year, I grew true potato seed for the first time. And I actually harvested quite a bit of, it was just a a landrace variety mix. So I've looked on your website and see all the different varieties that you have. And I just want to know how many, how much landracing do you do with your true potato seeds? And as I go forward, are there varieties that would be better for me to try or just try them all and see what grows here?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm not entirely sure how to answer how much land racing I do. So Many of the things that I offer are mixes, and those mixes have occurred in many cases over multiple generations. So I've, I've saved from an initial base of clones. I've selected for the trait of interest among those clones. Then I've crossed them to each other. And then repeated the process, and so I'd say that makes it a land race of a sort it, but I'm not selecting in most cases for anything other than a very specific trait so if i'm if I'm offering red tetraploid potato seeds, then I'm selecting for red, <laughs> and there are right. some other things that I'm selecting for just unconsciously generally if if a variety is not large enough not yielding not whatever i'm throwing it out but i'm not really uh, applying any specific measurements to it mostly what i'm doing is trying to get genetics out of clones and to make them available as seeds and i'm not thinking too specifically about what else is going into that mix and in many cases i'm not growing things for multiple generations so if you look at my website and you see anything that's a tps mix that is something that has been grown for multiple generations for example okay. my wide tps mix is uh, that's something that's been grown annually for 10 years where every year i'm selecting the best then i'm saving seed then i'm plowing it back into that seed mix so i think that's a pretty good case for a kind of a land race style growing in yeah. others if there's a name on a variety I might've only grown it once just enough
0: to get seed out of it. I, when people ask me, I typically recommend Williams tetraploid mix and then select out of that for what you love.
1: Yeah. That's the idea in general is that I'm not trying to bring you, I'm not trying to bring you a A land race that you would necessarily just continue growing indiscriminately. I'm trying to bring you a source of genetics from which you select your starting material, and then, and then produce whatever you want from there.
2: Right. So that's what I'm looking for: potatoes that I can grow here, that I can get them to harvest. Like last year, I planted 300 potato plants and harvested maybe 250, and. None of them went to seed, but I'm having a short season. So this year I'll plant the, some of those from tubers and hope that they will make seed. So it's just a short season. I got tubers and some as big as my fist and some like marbles. I had a range of colors and sizes. And so I'm looking for something that'll grow a nice tuber and go to seed that'll thrive here in my short growing seed season. So that's, so thank you. I appreciate that input.
1: So there's a, so there's a particular challenge with, with growing potatoes from true seed in a short season climate. And that is that there's compitu- competition between formation of tubers and flowering and it, early potato varieties, very rarely flower. And when they do flower, they flower briefly because that plant is in a race to form tubers and die and there's very little time and very little energy for it to form flowers so all the best known early potato varieties are a real pain in the ass to get seed from and it there's probably not a great prospect for a long-term land land race type variety from seed with those kinds of potatoes because you're just up against the very real limitations, the reproductive sink competition between the tubers uh, and the seeds. So what I would recommend in that case is trying to mix in some more mid-season type potatoes with your early potatoes and focusing on getting seeds in the years when your climate, when when your growing season is long enough to cross over between those. Because you're going to get a lot of early seed from a cross between an earlier variety and a mid-season variety, and probably enough to keep yourself going through the years when, when your season is short. But if you focus entirely on really early potatoes, you'll have to undertake specialized techniques in order to get seed from them. And those can be things like removing the tubers as soon as they form on the plants, or growing the plants in very shallow soil so that they can't form a deep root system pruning the stolons off as they form anything that keeps the plant from dumping energy into the tubers gives it the potential to form flowers that you can pollinate and get seeds from. But there's just, it's, it's just really hard with earlies that there's always a lot of extra work that goes into that because the plant is just, struggling as it is to make tubers before it dies
0: all right thank Thank you you. bill before we go can you tell us where to find you on the web
1: yeah you can find me at cultivariable.com that's you can also find find me on facebook we have a facebook group cultivariable which is quite active that's mostly where I spend any time on social media these days that we, I have other presences, but there's not much going on anyplace else. And of course, all the information is available at the website. So that's where I recommend that you go first. You can read about any of the crops that I work with and uh, there's pretty comprehensive information there.
0: All right. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Julia and Holly for technical support. Oh, sorry, Anna. (laughs) And (laughs) thank you very much.